Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Hello, curling fans, and welcome back to Way Inside. John Cullen with you as always. And let's talk a little news. I know Warren and Kevin are usually the newsmakers and newsbreakers on this feed, but some big news out of the curling world in the last couple weeks as Reed Carruthers is teaming up with Brad Jacobs for three slams. Maybe a wild card spot, too. That seems to be up in the air. If Reed doesn't win Manitoba, Brad doesn't win Northern Ontario, will he be allowed to play at the Briar as a wild card? Who knows? I don't think so. But maybe stranger things have happened. And so I think a lot of people saw this and they thought, my goodness, this is crazy. You know, Jason Gunlickson leaves Team Carruthers. Brad Jacobs is in. They're bringing in a big skip. It's a big change. This is... We've never seen this before. Well, you're wrong. We've seen this lots of times before. It is time to step into the way inside, way back machine. Did you know that in the last two seasons alone, there have been seven, yes, seven lineup changes between the start of the season and the briar? That's right. It's time for a little history lesson way inside style. In 2022, we had, of course, the famous botcher blow up. That led to Darren Molding leaving and playing with James Grattan in New Brunswick and Pat Jansen coming in and playing third for Brendan Botcher. Now, in Manitoba, Colin Hodgson, he played the Manitoba Provincial Playdowns on one leg. They won, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to play in the Briar. So Team McEwen had to bring in Colton Lott. He filled in admirably at lead. Glenn Howard, he played in the Briar, but you may remember he was injured. He couldn't play in the Ontario Provincial Playdowns, and his son Scott took over skipping duties. They brought in super spare Adam Spencer, and they played as a foursome. And then by the time the Briar rolled around, Glenn was fine. So last year... Four changes alone. Oh, and we can't forget Team Guju won the Briar with three. With not their original lineup, Mark Nichols had COVID and he was out. How about 2021? It couldn't have been that chaotic, right? Wrong again. Once again, it starts out east as James Grattan's third, Paul Dobson, didn't want to play due to COVID travel restrictions. So John Buke came over from Ontario and filled in at third. They even started four and one. Looked pretty good for a while there. The Maritime mix-up didn't end there as Jamie Murphy's team was selected to go to the Briar. Remember Omicron? So they just picked Jamie Murphy's team, but Jamie Murphy, same thing. COVID travel restrictions, he didn't want to play, so they bring in Scott McDonald. And as had happened in 2022, in 2021, Glenn Howard also injured. So who filled in? You may remember Wayne Madaw. So now they did great. They went seven and one. They lost the last game of the championship pool against Kevin Cooey. Otherwise, they would have been in a four-way tie at nine and three. They would have made the playoffs. It was a crazy run. So that might be the blueprint for Reed Carruthers, bringing back 
a skip to play on the team, take over the team. Now, I think Wayne Madaw probably had a few more Caesars in his time off than Brad Jacobs did. But I do think that there is a lot more precedent for this type of thing than we think. And strangely enough, of all the teams that Carruthers and Jacobs might be trying to emulate at the Briar, it was Brendan Botcher who had the most success bringing Pat Jansen on. They made the 1-2 game. They lost that and they also lost the semifinal to the aforementioned Team Guju with three players, but they still won a Briar bronze medal despite not only changing their lineup between Playdowns and the Briar, but also having to go through all of that controversy swirling around them with the whole Darren Molding thing. So, Team Carruthers, now with Brad Jacobs, you might think they're screwed, they're done, but they're not. There's a lot of precedent for this, and I know I, for one, will be looking forward to seeing it. Now, speaking of mix-ups... We're going to be interviewing a skip this week whose team did get a little bit mixed up coming into this season, but with a lot of familiar faces returning. I'm going to be talking to John Epping this week, who is now back reunited with Pat Jansen, who came back over from that team Brendan Botcher team at second. Matt Cam has moved up from the front end to play third, and they've picked up Scott Chadwick, who was on Team Horgan last year that went to the Olympic trials. John and I have a great chat. I don't want to belabor the point anymore. He's getting ready for the Ontario Provincial Playdowns. So let's get to it. This is Way Inside, Episode 3. Here we are with John Epping, episode number three. And John, we're going to start the show the same way we always do with a lightning round right off the top. It's called the top four. You're just going to give me a quick answer to these four questions. You ready? Yeah, as ready as I'm ever going to be, I guess. (laughs) No warning. Question one, which curler have you never played with that you would most want to? It has to be the Kudog. The Koo Dog. Okay. If all the rocks are exactly the same, so you know that both sets are perfect, which color are you picking? I'm going to go with black. What's something that's considered a basic thing in curling that you struggled to learn? I think that you had to hit rocks and take rocks out. How would your bitterest rival describe you? I'm kind of like a bad rash. I don't go away. (laughs) So they're sort of complimenting you, but they're also pissed off that you just won't leave them alone. Yeah, I think so. I don't think I've really ticked anybody off in my uh, career. I guess I could have. I I mean, we'll see. You know, I I didn't talk to that many people before this interview, but, uh, you know, maybe I didn't talk to the right people. (laughs) There there was there was a time that, you know, when the whole broom fiasco went down and we had that uh, magical broom head one time. And I think there were probably a couple guys that were mad at me that day. (laughs) I uh, I think there were a few people mad at a few people on that day. Yeah, on yeah, that day. yeah. yeah. relationships were broken. <laughs> I like this interview so far. You've just told me all my questions are fantastic, so I'd love to keep that rolling. And this is the first non lightning round question. Do you like being named John? Yeah, it's fine. It's pretty basic, but I mean, you know, right? but yeah, it's okay. It's okay. That's how I feel too. It's like fine, but is your is yours a family thing? Mine's a family thing. Yeah, family thing. Yeah. And I noticed you're J-O-H-N. So, you know, nobody should call you Jonathan, but some people will call you Jonathan. Doesn't that piss you off? That drives me nuts when someone calls me Jonathan. So, well, I don't think I have the same anger as you, but um, <laughs> yeah, I was, but yeah, no, it's, it's cool. Because imagine if you get a name that that's just, you know, people talk about and they don't like, then you name that. So John, it's not like really anybody can say anything. That's true. Yeah. Mine is a, I'm the fifth. I'm John the fifth. 
I have the same first and middle name as my like up to my great great grandfather. Oh, that's so I'm yeah, there's a there's a bunch of Johns there. And do you have time if I tell you a quick story about there's another the other John Epping? Yes, okay. I was gonna bring that up. The sound the guy who does like soundscape music. Well, no, this would be my this would be my uncle John. Who <laughs> Uncle John? Oh, Uncle John. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with Uncle John first. Who's a curler? I know him as uh, as as Jay, and everybody calls him Jay. But at the Tam at the Curling Club, everybody calls him you know John Epping, and uh, you know they they say that he's uh, he's got the name, but he doesn't have the game. So he actually has one of our <laughs> our team jerseys, and on the back it says double zeros with the the name. And another great story when, you know, when days when Calcutta's were big, he was, he was at a a fun spiel in, uh, in Scarborough called the beer and beef and Calcutta was up and this team sees John Epping on the, on the board. And they're, this team is just betting like crazy on John Epping goes, but boom. So number one, I think they go for like a few thousand dollars and they think it's me. And of course they're like, John Epping, come on up and meet the team that's bought you and up walks my uncle. And, and of course they're like, you're not John. And then, you know, he pulls out his ID. He's like, well, I am. And anyways, it's yeah, classic. So. so did he have to, did he give you, did he give his old nephew a call? Be like, look, you got to bail me out. These guys are threatening to lead pipe me in the park. I don't, I don't think he was in the spiel long enough. So. <laughs> well, it was, I was like, I was Googling you and there is also a John Epping that makes like, um, Brian Eno-esque like atmospheric soundscape music and um, I didn't know if that was secretly you because there's no pictures of this guy anywhere so I was like you think I would be that cool no I am not that cool no I don't but I just let's be real (laughs) (laughs) on my sub stack I wrote an article about the all-time first name teams for men and women so like if you had to make a team throughout history of all the same, you know, the players all had to have the same first name, right? Uh, Who would be the best team? And so I had the Johns in the top three, but unfortunately I did have us, well, not us, I'm not on the team, obviously, but I had us third behind the Kevins and the Davids. But on the John team, I'll say this, I think all the other positions are pretty normal. We've got John, or like pretty obvious. We've got John Landsteiner at lead. We got John Kawaja or John Mead at second. We've got John Morris at third. But the question is, John Epping, who skips you or Schuster? Oh, geez, that's a great one. I actually, I've seen some video of him sweeping from years back at the Olympics, like when he was at his first one. He, yeah, I probably, he should probably skip. Yeah, I watched that. <laughs> so, so you're on the bench. I think, you're the I think I'm the fifth. I'll just chill. Yeah, fifth is a great <laughs> position. What goes in those, uh, you know, in those Tim Hortons cups are fantastic, right? Oh, baby, I love it. I know I'm about. Uh, well, when this episode drops, I will be the fifth, uh, or a fifth at BC Provincials, and it's kind of like my dream has always come true. I've, I keep telling people I'd be a great fifth, and now I'm I'm finally getting my chance. About to find out. It feels great. Um, okay, let's talk about your career for serious. Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to start by rewinding a little bit uh, because I haven't talked to you since 2016 for an interview. So we're like, we're, we're almost seven years since we've talked for an interview, which is, you know, sort of disgraceful. And I asked you a question. I said, what was something that you incorrectly believed was true for a long time? uh, Stupidly. And you had an answer to that question that I won't say on this podcast, but it was very funny. But then you had a second answer, which was that you believed that you would have been in the briar by 2016. And then 
you did end up making the briar, but it took another two years after 2016, 2018, you finally made the briar and you had kind of one of the longest roads that a top skip has ever had to making the briar took you 13 years from getting out of junior to making the briar. And I was just curious, like, how did you keep going? Because I think a lot of people in your shoes would have hung them up and been like, you know what, God, I just, I, I don't know, like what, what was, you know, what kind of kept you going that entire 13 year stretch? Well, there's one thing I love. I love the game and I, I love curling, you know, no matter what, I have a huge passion. This has been, you know, it's been in my blood since I was a kid. I owe a lot of thanks to the, the continuation of, of there were some after some finals that I was upset and in particular, there was one and uh, that I lost. And my aunt who is uh, kind of a life coach, business coach, uh, reached out to me and, and um, just said, when you're ready, I would love to talk. And um we uh, you know, we had a great conversation and she really helped coach me the next couple of years, even worked with the whole team, a lot of focus on me and, and really being ready. I remember that final in 2018 when we were going out to play Glenn at the provincial final and I had, we had lost the basically the A final and then the one two game. So he's beaten us twice and now we're going to the final and I remember staying in the locker room. Everybody went out. I just kind of remember staying for an extra 10, 15 minutes in the locker room by myself before the game and just really making sure that my mindset was was not here we go again. You know, this is this is uh, you know, we've been here, done that. So I owe a lot to her and part of that and my family and friends and and supporters that always just say, you know, we were proud of you, keep it, keep it going. And but you also have to remember too, we were still, you know, number six and there was times that we were number four in the world losing to number one in the world which was glenn so you have to really make sure that you put it all in perspective too what was the final that particularly upset you like what was it about that particular year or final that really set you off there was one we were up we were just up a bunch and lost and, and it just seemed like then to me it was like you know, I was kind of the, the feeling of rock bottom and, and uh, just not to be able to uh, to close the deal on that one. My follow up question was going to be like, what's advice that you maybe have for someone in a similar situation? You know, like maybe the guy who's interviewing you right now um, who has lost uh, his share of provincial finals as well. Um, but like, you know, talking about your aunt, like what was something what was sort of the one thing maybe if you can distill it down that she said that kind of helped sort of crack that egg for you? Because I know sometimes it can just be like one thing. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at it from a different perspective was is there one thing that you could kind of pin down that she really helped you with? It was it was really paying attention to the routines. And, um, you know, getting those really, you know, in place, and really having an understanding of, of your team as a whole and what you're really pay attention to each other and not let each other uh, drown if, if that's the case or, or look into each other and see what's making them play their best. So it, I really focused on probably those three or four things that just made it so much easier when it got to that next final. We worked so hard at it those next couple of years that, you know, getting to that final, it you know, kind of felt like this was going to happen to be all those processes were in place. I've got her number. She doesn't charge much. So can, <laughs> you can afford it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I got this Sportsnet podcast money now, so I can I can afford just about anything. Raining. <laughs> you know it. I wanted to talk about your your coming out story a little bit, if that's cool. Of course. 
so I was reading about it, you know, because you know, preparing for this interview. And, and I think a lot has been talked about in this sort of realm. And you did a great interview with Greg Smith and Donovan Bennett on Sportsnet, which if you're listening, you should go check it out if you haven't seen it about you two playing each other, the first two openly gay skips to play each other at the Briar. So when you first came out, you know, there was an article written about you by Gregory Strong in the Canadian press. And you had a really interesting quote that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and and I'll, I'll just read the quote here. You said, if somebody asks, I just talk about it. And I know I should probably do more of these because it can help people. But I just look at it like I haven't thought about going around broadcasting that I'm a gay person curling. This is my life. This is me. It's a part of life. It's what it is. And I do think it is interesting in sports right now because there are so few openly gay people playing sports. It is a sort of situation where when you come out, you become a sort of default ambassador, you know, that people want to, you know, talk to you about it and, and everything. And is that sort of weird? Like, is that a weird or a strange role? Like just by virtue of coming out now, all of a sudden you're, you're sort of in this position. Is that a fair thing to say? I think it was a, a, it's a really fair thing to say at the time. We're looking six years ago, and in six years, I have a better understanding of of the it is what it is probably statement that uh, that I made, and it was so new to me being in in the spotlight with it being asked by multiple uh, journalists, broadcasters, sportscasters to to talk about this. But now I I think it's uh, super important to be a role model ambassador for the community in sport. I think it's really important. I don't think, you know, if other athletes, whatever athlete, you know, decides to come out in, in the media or, or is outed or however it happens, I think it's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. I don't think that needs to be an expectation of anybody that once that, you know, kind of happens, I think you choose if you want to kind of go that path. Um, and I've chosen to talk about it openly. I encourage people to write me, to hop into my DMs if they need to talk at all or have questions about it, which it's great. I get questions from straight people and I get questions from gay people. So I think it's it's really good to open those doors. And, and you know, I'm giving all my personal uh, experiences and what I'm seeing uh, and, and the way I'm seeing um, the LGBT community shape in, in sport as well. You know, I, I saw that quote and I was like, oh, I, I wonder if that has changed. So it's it's interesting because that was going to be my next question. Like, you know, how do you think you've sort of grown into that role a bit? Because I do think, you know, and just knowing you, too, I, I think it was maybe something that you felt a little bit odd about at, at first. And, and as you said, I do think you have obviously in the media and, and otherwise have, have shown that you've sort of grown. What were some of the things that maybe helped you grow into that role a, a, a little bit more? Um, there's definitely some organizations and talking to other ambassadors and people that are more experienced has, has helped. I would say the more messages I get to talk to, um, you know, other people in the community that um, might be struggling or it's new to them or just even, you know, talking to people that don't quite have the understanding of why it's necessary to come out in the media and to, why can't you just be John the curler? Why are you, why do you have to be, a, you know, John the gay curler? Well, yes, I'm still a curler, but I think it actually is very important, you know, with the way our world is. And yes, we're progressing, but there's lots of progress still to be made. I think it's important for myself. I feel it's important to be out, uh, out in the media and, and open to discussions and like a discussion today. I was going to ask you 
uh, sort of the last thing on this. Uh, what do you feel like in curling specifically? What's something that you see as the sport needing to improve when it comes to, you know, LGBTQ2S plus type stuff? I think we need to continue to, um, you know, encourage leagues at different clubs. There's some great gay leagues across our country. And we have to remember with these leagues, you don't just play in them if you are gay. It's for, you know, LGBTQ members and allies. And that's such an important part of the community is the people that are supportive. So it would be great to see that, uh, you know, in more curling clubs, I think, especially in, in more rural areas. I'd love to see, you know, just more inclusiveness. It's not to say that they're not already inclusive. I just think to maybe promote that a little more and say, hey, this is a safe space for you to come and compete and play and have fun. Yeah, because I mean, I think overall, especially compared to other sports, you know, curling's in a pretty decent spot when it comes to that stuff. But, you know, I think there's always room for improvement. And I think, you know, what you said is is a great thing. I mean, obviously, I live in Vancouver, the home of the Pacific Rim League, which is, you know, a very well-known and long-established gay league. And, and yeah, like you said, I think the allies component of it is key, too. I think a lot of people don't realize it's not some sort of, uh, you know, like closed situation where, you know, oh, well, that's, you know, queer people play in that league, so I can't, you know, or whatever. I think that's an, imp- I think that's an important point. It's a huge point to make. And I, I think, yeah, having that support and think is just so, so important. Before we get into this year, uh, I always like to do a little fun mid-episode segment called Dirty Laundry, where I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I ask some people about, you know, for some dirt on you. You're, you're a guy that's maybe not easy to track dirt down on, but um, I got sent a, a photo um, and it's not as a, your eyes went wide. It's not as incriminating as it sounds. But uh, this was uh, a photo that was posted to uh, Don McEwen's Instagram. Do yourself a favor. Head on over to Don McEwen's Instagram. It's a series of two photos. But the second one in particular, you're down on one knee. Don is sitting on your knee and you are handing her a white rose. John Epping, can you tell me exactly what's going on here? <laughs> I, I guess I <laughs> thought that... Uh... I was going to be married to a woman. <laughs> Just psych. <laughs> looks, um, you know, I, I looks. I guess it looked. I mean, or maybe it was the first date, or I was asking her a date. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. But I remember. I do remember that. That was. Uh, yeah, that was in Calgary uh, at uh, at a spiel they used to used to have, and and uh, her team. She was playing with Jen Hanna, and uh, I was actually playing with Sebastian Robillard. Oh, my old teammate. We played together in juniors and, uh, and yeah, we were out at a spiel together and yeah, they had this little photo session thing and yeah, Don and I put on a performance. So <laughs> very funny time capsule for multiple reasons, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, it was a great look and honestly a little bit of an underrated, uh, a little bit of an underrated, like you go down on one knee and the girl sits on your, yeah. your knee. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but if you were to ever recreate the picture with Tom, you could okay. Oh, I thought you said recreate the picture with Don. <laughs> See if Don and I could do that after you know after uh, twenty two years. <laughs> that knee's got a lot more slides in it now. It's like it's okay, Mike. You don't have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you were taking pictures of the John Epping. Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> All right, now let's get into uh, this last year. Obviously, it's been a crazy 
uh, sort of last 365 days for curlers. And I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your team's dissolution at the end of last year, you know, because I think when you came together with Ryan Fry uh, a year into last year's quad, a lot was made about how close you two are that, you know, you two are great friends and you had wanted to curl with each other for a long time and you're finally getting the opportunity to play together. And I think it's fair to say that it probably didn't work out exactly the way that you guys were, were hoping, you know, you had a couple of nice wins, but it, you know, I, I feel like it didn't quite, you know, especially last year felt like, you know, everybody kind of knew uh, their, their team's probably done. Um, what do you think in particular, maybe didn't quite work as well with the with the pairing of you two? Uh, that's a really good question. I actually thought things went quite well with him. I mean, I, I'd like to say the pandemic was really tough on our team. Um, you have to remember right before everything happened, we were number one in the world. You know, we had, had won the Canada Cup, had won uh, three spiels in the fall, uh, you know, had a pretty decent run at the Briar. We lost uh, the tiebreaker game to, to Jacobs at the hometown Briar. So, you know, it was going then, of course, we, you know, we didn't play for, uh, you know, for a while. I don't know what kind of went wrong there. It's a really, really great question. It just, it just seemed like it was tough for us as a team, I would say as a foursome to win games. And I know Mike and uh, Ryan have a great relationship and had developed quite a close relationship over the, uh, the course of the last couple of years uh, during COVID. So it wasn't surprising to me that they, decided to go and play together. But overall, it was I was pretty happy with, I would say, our, our run for the couple of years. The trials, we even actually kind of got it going. Uh, you know, I'd love a couple of shots back, you know, two, three shots back. And I think that trials is, is very different for us and we're maybe into the playoffs. So, um, I mean, you know, we showed, we showed some life there and I really don't know why maybe it didn't work out, uh, you know, at the end and why we didn't have more, let's say, consistent success uh, over the last year and a half. Right. And so you're saying that it was sort of Ryan's decision to leave, like you would have played with him again? Yeah, I think we would have talked uh, about what the future would have looked like. But um, I know Ryan had um, had already made up his mind before we, we talked as a team that uh, that he was going to go and, and play with Mike, and which wasn't shocking. I mean, I had a list of, and options and things, what some squads could look like if, if things didn't right. work out and even ones that involved including Ryan and ones that, uh, that didn't. And, but no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a total surprise that, that he had left. And, and it's not also to say that we would have, we would have stayed together if he didn't end up going with Mike. Right now, tell me a little bit about how this year's team came together, because I think as a, a casual observer of the game, people might see it as, a bit of a step back and in, in just in the sense that, you know, you're playing with two Olympians in Brent and, and Ryan and, you know, you're moving Matt up from second to third uh, and not that Matt doesn't have experience at third, but I think people might've seen that lineup and thought, Oh, this is interesting. I might've thought John maybe would have hooked up with some more high profile names for lack of a better word, but obviously you've had a great year. Uh, so what, what was sort of the impetus for, that kind of, you know, forming that lineup? What what made you sort of go in that direction and, and perhaps not pursue maybe a more, I guess, high profile, um, you know, match for lack of a better word? Yeah, I, I totally understand. I mean, obviously, I, I had two unbelievably decorated curlers on my on my team and then the experience in Langer and, and uh, what he brings to the game. And but I, I think there's also there was something to be said about the hunger and uh, and the want to 
to uh, to have even greater success that hadn't been had before. And that's something that, you know, you see in, in somebody like, uh, you know, Scott Chadwick, who's a steady, been a steady player in Ontario for a long time, had uh, has had uh, had a good run, went to the Briar with uh, McDonald, and then obviously to uh, the trials last year with Horrigan. So somebody who, you know, had a, has had a taste for a couple of big events, but I thought it was a, a great opportunity to to have him on, obviously him also being um, six, three and, uh, you know, <laughs> built like a fridge, <laughs> 200, you know, 50 pounds is not, uh, not going to hurt you either. Yeah. Um, and then of course, you know, with Pat, I've worked with, played with Pat before and, you know, I joke our second marriage uh, we're going into again, and is that, um, you know, and I, I know his work ethic and and what he's capable of. And leaving that team the first time wasn't anything to do with shot making; it was just for an opportunity to play with the experience and exposure that that I had. So that was easy. And then, and Mac going back to playing third was is an easy fit for me. He's, I, you know, he was my third for four or five years. He's what I'm comfortable with, and and I know, and and the relationship is is great, and it's felt super easy this year. It's kind of a very, very comfort uh, thing for me when I'm uh, when I'm out there, uh, and then having Pat again sweeping my rocks and somebody who swept my rocks for four years. So that's you know obviously great, and and I think it's a team that still have want more that we want to win and, and accomplish that hasn't been done. So I, I think that's uh, you know an, an exciting part uh, a part for me. Nice, yeah. I wanna I wanna know, did you get any spicy offers to play third for anyone? There were some offers out there. Um, there was not really any to play third. I would say there was some discussions. It was, but uh, yeah, there was some. Okay, there was some discussions had, but uh, but uh, this one was pretty quick for me, and was almost a couple of days after we had right. Uh, you know, on, on our other team and, and disbanded that this was uh, this was ready to go. Fair enough. I wasn't sure. I was just like, you know, maybe. Obviously, you're still a, a very top level skip. Well, thank you. But this off season, I felt like everything was on the table, so I wasn't sure if someone was ringing you up being like, you know, you could make a pretty good third. <laughs> totally. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I know nothing against playing third at all. I'd be, uh, I'd be, uh, I'd be into that with the right, the right situation and no, no, nothing, uh, nothing like that. All right. Now I want to ask you one of the popular narratives in the game is, you know, people talk about scheduling and uh, we see it a lot, particularly with Krista McCarvel. We see it the other way where oftentimes we hear, oh, a certain team doesn't play enough. You know, whether it's Krista McCarvel or whether it's some of the other teams on the men's or the ladies' side where, you know, they're playing their five to seven events a year, but, you know, and then they're and then they're good. We see them at the Scotties and we, you know, or the Briar and we go, geez, they're, they're pretty good. You know, why don't they play more? One thing we don't talk about, though, is is they're playing too much. And uh, if there if that exists, you're probably on the poster for that because, I mean, your schedule, for people who don't know, this year has been insane. I mean, I'm interviewing you here on January 6th, and uh, you've played 14 events this year already. Has there ever been a time where you felt like this is too much? Like, you play more than anybody. First of all, what's your reasoning for wanting to play so much? And do you think that it's affected your game in a, in a positive or negative way? Um, well, the, the whole idea was not to play this much, but when you, <laughs> when you have mixed doubles and you have men's, that's what happened, right? Those 14 events were, I think five, five mixed doubles and, and the nine, the yes. nine men's events, um, that was not, um, what we were planning on, but we committed as the, the doubles, we want to commit to that C slam series, um, or, or mixed doubles, sorry, so I should say super series. 
Um, we wanted to commit right. to, to that, that Jay and Wayne had put together and, and support their events. You know, and for Lisa and I too, we have to play too, because we're also part of the national team and it's important for us to make sure that we are playing those events. And then with the men's team, that's the luxury. I should say it's not a luxury, but a, when you're on the cusp of the rankings for the Grand Slams and we were sitting on right. that 15th, 16th hovering, hovering. And so we had to play a couple extra events to try and get into um, those Grand Slam events, which, you know, as you know, the exposure and it's important when you have your partner's um, that support your team and, and, and you need to make sure that, uh, that you can be at as many of those events as possible and they just make you better. I mean, look at, look at what's happening in the world. We're seeing it right now that it's, those events are tough and they're, it, it's great to really play. If we were guaranteed to be inside that a little more in the slams, we definitely <laughs> wouldn't play. You'd like to play less. much, much less and doubles from the, what I'm hearing is next year, things will be spread out a little more which then then takes it to a very different schedule. But I went on a 10 in a row run at one point. Yes. I would like to say it probably hurt me at the last mixed doubles event, but it actually didn't hurt me during the course of my 10, 10 in a row. We qualified actually in every event we played in and uh, you know lost a couple of semis. I mean, the one slam we didn't qualify, but but uh, we're right in the mix um, in, in the round robin. So, But I was really mindful of my my energy levels and, and rest. Uh, you know, during those, uh, those events, but in, in there, oh, I overplayed, I overplayed by far, by far. So, so in your, in your mind, like what's an ideal, what, where would you be at if you had your druthers, like I would, eight or nine combined events? Yeah, exactly. Play, you know, six men's and then you play maybe three doubles before Christmas would be ideal. Um, this was just an odd year. Now, speaking of your mixed doubles team, you play with Lisa Weagle, as you said, and I've been, I've been begging you to for years. You got to call the team team weeping. What are we doing here? Why are we not? I'm, I'm mad. I, t- I tell both of you and you just won't do it. And to me, it's a missed opportunity. You could have a logo with like someone's crying and it's like curling rocks or the tears. Like, I just think, I think we're dropping the ball here, John. I get it. Million. That's a million dollar idea right there. Well, that's what I'm saying. You could get, I mean, think of all the eye drop Visine. Visine would be ready to sponsor you guys in a hot minute. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? You, you make it happen. You do all the, you be our branding agent and you'll get a nice, you'll get it. You'll get a nice cut. We'll give you a nice cut. Send the contract, send the contract over. John, we're going to finish the show with a segment that I like to call extremely difficult own career trivia. This is where I ask you questions about your own curling career, moments that you specifically were a part of. There are going to be five total points available so far. Mark Kennedy is the high man at three. We'll see how well you fare. Question number one. You went to the Canadian Juniors in 2004, where you just missed the playoffs going eight and four. And the three teams that made the playoffs all went nine and three. Of those three teams that went nine and three, you beat one of them in the round robin. Which of those three did you beat in the round robin? Newfoundland. Newfoundland is right. Do you remember who skipped? Uh, Blanford. Matt Blanford. There you go. Okay. One for one. Very good, John. Oh, thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Question number two. You played in the Everest Spiel in 2017, the famous, the mixer, you know, where everybody was playing with different people and you narrowly lost the final to Brad Guju. You beat. Kevin Cooey in the semifinal, who had your teammate Pat on his team, which two women rounded out that four-person squad? Uh, Emma and Dawn. 
Wow. Okay, John. I'm impressed. Thank you. I thought that I thought that was a particularly tricky one, and you're on it like right away. That's very good. My memory is yeah. I, my curling memory is here. Okay. Your curling memory is here. All right. You should see how quickly I'm googling over here. It's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> that would be if you googled it that quickly. That would be unbelievable. And you brought this up apropos of nothing, but I did have a question about it, so it's perfect. In those uh, 2018 Ontario Provincials, where you went to, where you won and went to the Briar for the first time, you beat Glenn Howard in the final five to one. However, as you noted already, he did beat you in both the A final and the one two game. By how many combined points did he beat you in those two games? Gosh, are you kidding me? He probably beat me by a combined eight. So close, John. Nine. Nine points. Ten, ten, six in the A final and eight three in the one two game. Oh, that's close. <laughs> but then you took him down five one after six there blank ends in the final. That was wild. What happened? Yeah, remember that? That was crazy. Yeah, the ice got so they I don't know what they did. The ice got to, and I'm not exaggerating, 17 to 17 and a half hog to hog. Whoa. We couldn't, we couldn't keep it. So what happens is your leads would throw the guards in the house. You'd throw a draw for two through the ring. Oh, it was just, it was crazy. I don't know if they overclipped or nipped or what, but it was nuts. You just have to like fall out of the hack just to, <laughs> all right. Last question. In the 2018 Golden Wrench Classic in Tempe, Arizona, you finished the round robin at three and one, and you had to play a tiebreaker to make it into the playoffs, which you won. Who did you beat in the tiebreaker? Are you kidding me? Who did I beat in the tiebreaker? I think we lost to Laycock in the next game in the quarters. Who did we lose to? That's right. You did lose to Laycock. Yeah. Who did we beat? It was an American team, I think. Oh, I even know what they look like. <laughs> I, got, uh, I, got, I got nothing. It was me, John. It was me. It was you? It was Team Dean Jonis. <sighs> oh, my goodness. No, wow. Jerry. My heart's oh, broken. Wow. My heart is broken. He doesn't even remember. That's fair. Yeah. Well, it clearly had more of an impact on me than it did on you because I lost. Because <laughs> I lost. When you lose, you tend to remember it a little bit more than when you oh, win. Oh, that's so. Funny. Yeah, because we, wow. you guys, uh, you guys kicked our ass in the round robin, but then we beat Laycock. It was so weird. I was looking at the draw last night. This is a classic draw. You ready for this? Yeah. Me, you, and Laycock tied at three and one in the round robin. It was a six-team playoff. By virtue of Laycock's draw, they were in the semifinals and we were in the tiebreaker. Tiebreaker. Wow. That's that's t- that's probably not. No, right. probably, not. probably that's not. For, that's, that's for, for another, another day. day. That's yeah. for another day. Yeah. That's for so, another yeah. So day. you actually won the quarterfinals and then you lost the semis to Laycock. So to Laycock. Yeah. Right. I do. Okay. Crazy times. Crazy cool. times. But hey, at least we were in Arizona. Oh, great place to play. Great place to play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John, John, this was uh, this was a true a true treat, a real pleasure. Um, thank you so much for doing it. Before we go, I'd like to give you a chance to uh, to plug your sponsors. So have at it. Team Mapping would like to thank Grounded Engineering. As you can see, my uh, my hat. Uh, Shipton's Heating and Cooling, Epic Ale, uh, Chadwick Farms, Custom Garage Solutions, Balance Plus, Runback, and of course uh, the Lee Side Curling Club. There you go. Beautiful. Thank you so much, John. Uh, Take care and uh, best of luck with the rest of the season. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, John. 
So there you have it, John Epping. What a great talk. I always love talking to John. Great guy, great ambassador for the game in, in many different ways, honestly, and one of the busiest guys on tour. It was exciting to talk to him about that. It was uh, a bit of a a bit of a learning experience for all of us off the top of this episode. We hopped into the way inside way back machine. We looked at some recent history. Now I'm 37 years old. I am maybe not as good at some of the past history of curling. And so I thought who better am I to call to learn about something in curling's past than my very own Poppy Warren, Warren Hansen. I said, Warren, I got to learn something about the game because I grew up in an era where we already had the free guard zone. The hammer XL was dominating the broom landscape, the 10 inch brownie brush. And Warren said, John, let me tell you a story about how we used to sweep the ice. And then seven minutes later, he was done talking. And here is the story. This is my poppy Warren with the history of the corn broom. Why can I never find what I'm looking for? Here we go. Yeah, okay. Let's go. Okay. We look through history with curling, and certainly the game developed on the ponds and locks of Scotland. Oh my God, he's starting with ponds and locks? There was necessity for the path in front of the stone to be clean, so they brought out what would be uh, a later example. It was a corn broom, a broom made from broom corn of, of some substance that was used to clear the path in front of the rock because, uh, of course, there was snow happening many times and uh, other things that could obstruct. So that's kind of where the whole thing originated. Mm. Interesting enough, Scotland turned to brushes, not sure exactly when or why. We don't know that history, but certainly the corn broom and how it evolved in Canada, we know a fair amount about. So Thank God. Certainly as the sport came into Canada, people were using brooms that were made of Various things, I would imagine, initially, but ultimately, uh, into the 30s, 40s, these brooms were all made of broom corn, which actually came, for the most part, from southern U.S. and Mexico. The brooms used by the players up until the mid-50s pretty much resembled the same kind of broom that you'd use to clean your house with, and uh, there was no weight to the end of the broom at all, so virtually the most thing they could do was, again, clear the path, which still in those days, there was a lot of frost and different things that they could very much... uh, assist in mm. helping things uh, be better. But in 1953... I was negative 32. A gentleman in Montreal by the name of Fern Marsasso decided he wanted to get into the curling broom business, and he developed a new concept that uh, created a lot of excitement for the sport over the next 20, 30-year period. And what he did was the traditional corn brooms being used that were wide broke very easily because of how they were attached to the band at the top of the broom. Hard to explain. I mean, you're going to try though, aren't you? You're going to try to explain it, Warren. He cut off a lot of the outside of the broom about uh, six inches from the bottom. So the broom actually had a skirt on it. And the actually broom, part of the broom doing the sweeping was was the inner part, not the outer part. And so this cut down the breakage to some degree. But what he also did, the key thing here was... He invented something referred to as the floating string. The floating string. That sounds cool, actually. And he took and he attached a string bound through the bottom of the broom, about probably six inches, eight inches from the bottom of the broom. 
and it was attached on the outside by another string that went inside the broom up to the handle. So this was the moving string. This bottom string bounding the broom together, it actually moved. But what it did was it concentrated the, the straw in towards the center of the broom and give the broom actually by doing this more of a weight on the tip. And so when <laughs> more of a weight the on the tip. Tighter, it was a little bit heavier on the end. And so you could hit the ice with more force which certainly was determined by that time to be effective. You had to be able to hit the ice with a straw, the broom fairly hard. Okay, this is cool actually. I like this, this is good. Uh, the whole idea was further enhanced uh, by Curlmaster when they started making these brooms back in the early 60s. They took the big straws that were at the top large and tapered down to the end. They took a number of those in the center of the broom and they inverted them. Ooh. So the big straw came to the bottom and it now went tapered up to the top. And so it further increased the weight of this broom, uh, the, the broom itself at the end, so you could increase the force. And of course, you now started to make some noise with the thing as well, which didn't exist before. The problem with these inverted straws, however, was they were big and pulpy and they, and they shattered very easily. So you ended up getting a lot of broom pulp on the ice surface as a result of these inverted straw brooms. And there was a point in time where some curling clubs almost were threatening and I think did some cases ban them. Uh, the trademark that these brooms were made under was Curlmaster was the originator and the Blackjack. The Blackjack. See, now that is sick. If there was a broom on the market right now named the Blackjack, that's the one I'd be using. And their main competitor, Midwestern Broom, had another one that was equally as popular called the Rockmaster. The Rockmaster sounds like what a rush hour DJ would call himself. And during the early 60s, those were the two most popular brooms. But during that same period of time, Curlmaster started out with another idea by further in, increasing the weight at the end of the broom and the quickness, the recoil action of the broom. They put a leatherette insert down through the center of the of the broom as well and cut it off about an inch from the tip. How does he know all of this? I'm going to have to call Warren personally and ask him how he could. Like This is off the top of his head. How does he know all this stuff? Now, through all this, Fern Marsha Show ended up being connected with Curlmaster. And there was a patent on this floating string. Ooh, I know patent stuff can get a little bit he hectic. And uh, he owned the patent, of course. Through Curlmaster, they ended up with the rights to it. So there were three main broom companies, Midwestern, Curlmaster, and Forgale. Although Curlmaster owned the, the patent, the other two companies continued to make brooms with the skirt and the key thing that was the patent, the floating string, through this entire period of time. And the thing that started to change everything was in 1975, the young team of Paul Gausel won the Canadian Juniors. Paul Gausel, I remember him, ordered a pizza to a game one time when his uh, opposition was playing too slow. Who went into the men's side of things and started to uh, defeat everybody. They were using brushes. They weren't using brooms. By the time we hit 1980, the corn brooms had pretty much disappeared. Rick Folk was the last team to win the briar with a corn broom in 1980. And by 1985, the corn brooms had pretty much uh, failed to exist. I was in the corn broom business. I worked with Midwestern Broom. The interesting thing about the whole floating string and the patent that Marchessault won, there was a point in time when Curlmaster did sue the other two companies. The other two companies knew it was coming. They had been reserving 25 to 50 cents a broom for years because they knew that they were going to have to end up paying this royalty. And in the end, uh, they did win, Curlmaster did win the royalty contest, and the other two companies had to pay them. But as all that was happening, the corn brooms pretty much faded into oblivion, and by the mid to the late 80s, they virtually no longer existed. They were replaced by brushes as a result of Paul Gausel. <laughs> 
Poppy Warren, what a lesson. I didn't know almost any of that. I feel knowledgeable. I feel smart. That's probably not going to happen too often on Way Inside. Uh, thank you so much to Warren Hansen for the history lesson on the corn broom. I know we often do a question of the week here at the end of the show, but this week we thought we'd change things up a bit. Thanks again to Warren for that. Thank you to John Epping for sitting down with me for a great interview. Thanks to Amal and Mike. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Cullen on Curling. Come on over. I'm tweeting a lot of dumb things, just like I say a lot of dumb things on this show. And hopefully you'll be back with us in two weeks for another episode of Way Inside. I've been John Cullen. Remember, if you're going to be inside, be Way Inside. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.